Good morning. And we'll go ahead and read Psalm 12 this morning. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. This is a psalm about words. Words have incredible power. I would even say have disproportionate power. And you've had probably both of these things happen to you where someone could come and just a word kind of pull you back from the brink of despair or with a word send you kind of over that cliff of despair, of frustration, of stress. Um, Words can completely ruin lives. He talks about some of those kinds of words here. So this psalm is about the power of words, both negative, evil, deceitful kinds of words, but also the kinds of words that God himself speaks. Um, Let me just show you the structure of this psalm before we get into it. Verses 1 and 8, so that's the first verse and the last verse, are this figure of speech or this structure of speech known as an inclusio, which you can think of as like bookends or brackets, where uh, another way to think of it is like the opening and closing statements of a trial where an attorney's like, this is what the whole thing is about, and then I'm going to use everything in between to kind of explain or to prove those big points. So you look at verse 1, where he's like, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And then he concludes, verse 8, kind of like going back to this dark place, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And what David is lamenting is something like this. He's like, God, everywhere I look, the godly have disappeared and wickedness is just running rampant. David is lamenting the fact that amongst the people of God, he's not just like those nations out there that are evil and idolatrous, they're doing bad things. He's like, God, everywhere I look, including within the covenant people of Israel, Where are the godly? Where are the truth tellers? Because I feel like I'm trapped in a culture that has no regard for God. And that's why I said that's something that you can relate to, especially as you go out in the city, you go out to your jobs, you go out to your schools, many of you, and you feel like, where is just basic goodness and kindness, let alone intentional fruit of the Spirit? Because it feels like I'm seeing less and less of that. I'm hearing less and less of that. There's less and less of that even on social media or in the media. And I'm hearing more and more of the opposite. And I want to just give you this theme and then unpack it with you this morning. 
This is kind of what I hear David saying. Like, this is a little bit more colloquial, but it's kind of like this. He's like, let God's word drown out all the other words. And he's going to go through and list these kinds of words that he's inundated with day after day. But then he comes back to this point of like, but there is a word of God that sounds very different than all these other words. And I've got to make sure I'm hearing that voice, listening to that voice, responding to that voice. Okay. Um, This is a very simple outline because what he's going to do is kind of give you characteristics of the worldly culture that he's swimming in. He's going to give you characteristics of the Lord, show you a contrast, and then we're just going to draw a couple applications of that together. Okay. So characteristics of the world. Number one, the world is deceitful. Verse two, he says, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. And when you hear that, you're like, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. And we think of like, are you saying that everyone is out there like deliberately telling lies? Like they're saying, this is true. And you're like, but that's not true. That, that never happened. Or, or things that, that happened, you're saying that they didn't happen or whatever. And what I wanted to do for just a few moments is actually show you the truth of what he's saying, like kind of like everyone others lies to his neighbor, because there are many, many, many different socially acceptable ways of lying. I mean, our culture just has outright deceit where, I mean, we're accustomed to our politicians, our celebrities, just flat out lying, just saying something is true that is false and saying something is false, that they never did something that it's like, well, the paparazzi was following you and they took these pictures. So like, clearly you did that. But here are many other ways to lie. What about false accusations, also known as slander, where, where you say that someone else has done something or is characterized by something or they failed to do something and what you're saying about that person is not true. What about false promises? I mean, I guess a false promise could be like, you know, initially, like, I'm never going to get that for my kids, but they'll leave me alone if I tell them that, yes, we'll stop here and get this thing. But, but there are also other promises that you, maybe with good intent, make a promise, but it kind of trickles off with no real intent to keep that promise, and it ends up not being true because you don't fulfill your word to another person. What about things like lies of omission or half-truths? You know what that is, where you, you would maybe even say like, oh, I didn't lie. And it may be true that you technically didn't lie. You didn't say something that was false, but you told part of the story. You, you told one side of the situation. And by only telling a part of it, you deliberately led other people to believe something that was completely false. And you knew that you were getting them to believe something false by speaking half the truth. It's a way of being deceitful. What about, you know, in in politics and in the media, we call it spin. But it's where you you have this angle that you use to manipulate other people and to kind of message things the way you want and kind of massage it out there. And it's like, again, maybe part of the truth but completely deceitful. 
It's interesting, actually, in, in logic, we have something called confirmation bias, which is a way that we lie to ourselves. Confirmation bias is like, I'm out here, like, only looking for and listening to facts that align with what I've already chosen to believe. And it's a way that we can lie to ourselves because we hear something on the news and someone who, you know, politically or socially or even spiritually believes very differently than you, they're like, that's not what I heard from that news story at all. And you're like, how did you not hear this? And the reality is maybe you were listening for things that confirmed what you already believe. They were doing the same thing. You both kind of confirm and our society gets further and further apart and more and more divided because there's a kind of self-deceit even in that where we're not listening for facts that might correct us and enlighten us and make us truly wiser people. Um, We can lie through exaggeration or the opposite, minimizing something where we're like, oh yeah, it's like it cost me a million dollars to do this and it was like a hundred dollars, you know, and there's funny and harmless ways we do that. I'm not really digging into that but there are ways where we exaggerate our value or exaggerate what we've done or exaggerate how far along we are with a project to a boss. And it's like, well, really? Or we minimize someone else's effort, all ways of deceiving. Um, what about plagiarism? Where you take someone else's, like, basically intellectual property or their very words, and you use them, you restate them, and you don't give credit where credit's due, so you're not only stealing, but you're making people think this is mine and it's not, is a way of deceiving. Um, I wrote down one other this morning, which is silence. How much deception happens simply by silence? Where people come and say, well, I, you know, I know the true story. And it's like, okay, so are you going to stand up for that person? And it's like, well, I don't think so because there's too much on the line for me. Or, or you, you kind of get the picture of a situation and you just, you're like, it's not my place to speak the truth. And by silence, you are perpetuating maybe someone else's lie. But it can be incredibly destructive simply to remain silent when God has put the truth in your mind and he's put the truth on your lips. But you're like, well, there would be consequences for me if I spoke up. And so we don't. And again, like as we start to see there's, you know, eight or ten very common forms of deceit, we start to realize maybe David's actually not deceiving himself and exaggerating. Maybe it's true that pretty much everywhere he looks and everywhere he's listening, he's surrounded by deception. The world thrives on deception. Well, I want to dig under that for a second and just say, like, what are some reasons that we lie? Because if you understand why you do what you do, it's a little easier to stop a sinful habit and give it to the Lord. So here are a couple. You may lie, you may deceive to deliberately hurt someone else. This happens all the time. Culture looks at someone or, or like an individual looks at something or a tribe of people looks at another tribe or another individual that doesn't embrace their ideology and they deliberately want to harm that individual. Maybe you even felt this way and you're like, I knew I lied about this coworker Um, kids here, maybe you lied about a sibling, and you're like, he broke this because you're like, I want him to get the discipline, I don't want the discipline, which kind of starts merging into this other. Another reason we lie is like to save face or avoid something unpleasant. So we're like, no, I didn't knock that over and break that, but you did, but you don't want the discipline that may come or the cost of reimbursing something or replacing something. 
So we're often saving face of like, no, I, I, I didn't do that or I didn't say that. And like deep down you're like, I did say that. That was stupid. But instead of just saying like, I'm sorry, I said that, that was wrong. Will you please forgive me? We're like, no, no, no. I'm not the kind of person who would even say something like that. Um, sometimes we lie or deceive to impress or to gain something desired, kind of the flip side of avoiding something unpleasant. But it's like, I want something, I'm pursuing something, I feel like I have to lie or deceive in order to get it, so we lie or deceive in order to get it. How about this, which this one feels better, but you ever lie to avoid hurting someone else's feelings? And you're like, I don't, I don't really want to tell them the truth. Is it, like they would be hurt if they knew this thing. Or how about just lying to, to push a particular narrative or to push a particular ideology? Deceit. So you can see, like, it's common. The roots of it are common. It's why we are swimming in a culture that's filled with deceit, like David. Second characteristic of the world is duplicitous. I'm using that word on purpose because verses 2 and 3 say this. He's like, this is the way the world is. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Flattery is an interesting word because it comes from a root word in Hebrew that literally means smooth or slippery. It's a smooth or slippery word. And we know that it is intending like a false kind of praise. And it just like, it just slides out because what are we doing with flattery is we're manipulating someone else for personal advantage. We're, we're publicly sitting there and being like, oh, this guy on my team, he was, he was awesome. He's made so many sacrifices for the team. And then you go to like the president or the VP or whoever, and you're like, you got to fire this guy. And it's that double heart kind of thing that leads to a duplicity, two things happening simultaneously that are at odds with each other. And sometimes the, the attitude is like, I actually want something from them. I want to manipulate them to get what I want. And so what comes out is praise. Like, you look so wonderful in that. And there's a sarcasm and a smoothness, a slipperiness, but it's disingenuous. Third characteristic is domineering, verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? And you just take one look at social media let alone some of your work environments, some of your like neighborhood HOA environments where everybody's vying to like prove that they're better and, and wealthier and have their kids in more stuff than everybody else. And there's this, this shameless self-promoting braggadocio, which is what this is talking about. There's a desire to dominate other people and exalt self with lots and lots of empty words. I'll give you some examples of this just to, just to hear also how prevalent this is. What about like someone who always has to have the last word? And you ever, you ever get this way? Like sometimes I'm this way in like even in an email conversation where I'm like, there's no point in responding. It's like whatever, whatever the last like resolution I think we've like reached, there's always another email after that that like just unravels it all again. And then we try to put it back together or meet in person. And the last word is like, I got to unravel it again to gain some kind of power, to have some kind of domination over you, to kind of control and manipulate you. 
How about this? Like, do you, you ever meet a person who always raises the volume and the intensity when they have absolutely nothing to say? And it's like, maybe if I get louder and pound the table because I don't have substance, but, but it's, it's a desire to control the conversation with volume and with like bigness and exalting self instead of just saying like, yeah, I don't know. Let me go back and explore that. I don't, I haven't thought that through yet, or I don't have substance to support what I'm saying. How about people that, that put down others in order to appear superior? We try to teach our kids even this of like, you know, those, the people that do that as kids and then teens and then at college end up being adults that just constantly are going around just picking and putting down because they feel like this exalts me over other people. This gives me more power, more control over other people. And if you step back from a situation that you're not emotionally attached to, you're like, that's a really toxic person with a lot of domineering traits about their personality and about the way they're using words. What about claiming experience or history or knowledge or sacrifice to look more important, to, to exalt self? Of like, you know, like there have been famous people who invent this whole backstory to look like they have this incredible education and all these connections and wealth to invest and you, you want to be friends with this person and, and underneath it all you're like, wait, that was just boasting and empty boasting at that, just demanding to climb some kind of corporate or social ladder to dominate other people. That's what he's talking about in verses three and four is that kind of domineering attitude which spills over into domineering words. The fourth characteristic of the, the wicked, the world, is that they're destructive. Verse 5, the poor are plundered, the needy groan. Verse 8, he says, on every side the wicked prowl. Okay, if you're an animal, a prowl is a pretty specific way of walking. Okay, a prowl is not migrating. It's not like galloping. It's not just aimlessly meandering, like foraging for fruits or berries or nuts or something. Um, if you're prowling, the word literally means stealthily searching to kill something and devour it. Okay, you don't accidentally plunder and prowl. You don't wake up one day and be like, whoops, I plundered my neighbor. Like the, these are intentional things. Um, the, word, the word plundering is like a theft of like, I will destroy you by taking something that belongs to you. I will harm you by taking something that belongs to you. They're two different kinds of predatory behaviors. And our world is characterized by people who actually delight to harm other people. Like there, there's a physical harm, which is probably the most obvious. But what about narcissists who love to emotionally, psychologically harm other people in order to have power and control over them? like intentionally using criticism or sarcasm to constantly tear down, undermine someone's confidence in themselves or even their view of like, am I just crazy? Am I remembering this wrong? This other person just always says that like everything I remember, like just in a total way, is just all false. And there's that kind of harm. There's people that seek harm to your employment, harm to your finances. We could go on and on. But the, the why behind words like plundering, taking it from you, and prowling, like stealthily seeking after to devour, the, the common 
motive behind those is personal gain or personal benefit. I'm taking something from you that I believe benefits me. So I'm destroying you in some way in order to benefit myself. And the world is full of that. Um, Then one final characteristic of the world is that it's depraved. Verse 8, vileness is exalted among the children of man. Vileness is a word that means depravity. It's a word that means moral filth. I probably don't even have to give examples of that for you to have some conception or some visceral reaction in your body, in your mind of like, that's filthy, that's disgusting, that's depraved, it's twisted. Okay, even, I don't know if you know this, our, our legal code actually differentiates between crimes and heinous crimes. And again, I don't really have to give you like deep illustrations of that. You, you hear the news, you read the news, you, you pass by the news every day or every week or however often, probably more and more of you are trying to avoid it because you're like, it's always negative. But you hear things on the news and you're like, another car accident, another shooting, another stabbing, this and that and the other. And we, we grow pretty callous to even death and robbery and all kinds of stuff. But aren't there some crimes that you're like, whoa, and it's shocking of like, th- this person was not just killed, they were stabbed a hundred times. And you're like, that's something different. This person was not just what, and we could go, again, I'm, like, I'm not trying to suggest a bunch of specific examples with children sitting here and getting your mind working too fast and being like, this is stressing me out. But that's the idea of depravity is there's a level of things in our world that you're like, things that people wouldn't even speak of in a healthy culture are front and center. And I want to point that out in this phrase that he doesn't say that vileness is simply tolerated. He says it's elevated and it's celebrated. Again, things that you wouldn't even speak of years ago are not just like, well, let those people do the vile thing that they're doing. Those things are brought into like the public square into the parade route. And it's like, let's celebrate this. There's no shame. There's no guilt in this evil anymore. This is awesome how flagrantly immoral and twisted we can be. And as I think of this, like basically how David is characterizing what his culture is becoming, I thought of this example of, you know, Lot in the Old Testament, Abraham or Abram's nephew, that there was that time that God was blessing both of their lives, both of their families, their flocks. There were too many of them to like settle down in the same area. So Abram's like, Lot, you, you pick where you want to go in this promised land of ours, and I'll just take the leftovers. And Lot looks over here at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's like, ooh, I want to be over there. That's, that's the good land. And, you know, if you know much, you don't have to know the Bible to hear words like Sodom and Gomorrah and be like, oh, those were, those were bad places. Those were vile places. Okay. Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 says this of Lot. It says, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's kind of how David feels when he's writing this particular psalm. This is how some of you feel when you look around culture. And I'm not saying like you're wringing your hands of like, I'm perfect, I'm awesome, culture's a mess. But, but I do hear more and more of this and sense some of this from like just orthodox Bible-believing Christians of just like, where have the righteous gone? 
Like, where are the people who are content just to love God and love their neighbor and lead a simple life without all the lying and the arrogance and the conflict and the violence and the stuff just being front and center with every movie we try to watch and every sitcom has to insert these themes that it's like, ugh. Okay, before I go to the characteristics of the Lord, I want to stop what we're doing right there, which is looking at the world, looking at the culture and being like, it is so messed up. Because it is, okay? We can acknowledge that. But I think it's important what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 to bring that into this context. He says, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Are we not to judge those inside? He's like, what business is it to look at the world that doesn't have Jesus that, that does not have a personal relationship with God. He's like, of course they're messed up. They need Jesus. So like, we're not that church that just sits here and just rails on these are all these evils of the world. We should go out and tell them to fix it all. It's like, no, they need good news that there is hope and transformation in Jesus because then Jesus can give them his spirit and his spirit can transform their lives. That's what we need, okay? But, but what he's saying is, are we not to judge those inside so as, as David is lamenting the kind of culture that he finds himself in, one of the reasons that he's lamenting it again is he's like, these aren't just the Philistines or the Edomites. These are the covenant people of God. And I want to kind of say the same for us. Like, my concern is not that we live in a culture that is sinful. Of course they're sinful. Of course they're broken. Like we are. The concern is, where is the deceit, the duplicity, the domineering attitudes and words, the destructive nature, and ultimately the depravity in the church? Because these things ought not be. Like if we've been called to follow Jesus, we've invited onto a different path. We have a relationship with God. We, we have the very characteristics that we're about to talk about from our Lord church should be free of half-truth and innuendo and silence that just allow like an entirely false narrative to be propagated like for the sake of power. There shouldn't be power structures and domineering and control and manipulation and duplicity of like buttering someone up so you can actually behind their back be cutting them down and I'm saying like this is a call to look at our own lives, not the stuff out there, but say, Lord, Am I guilty of any of these things like deceit, like duplicity, like domineering? Am I destroying other people, harming other people to get something that I want with very little concern for love for another man or woman? Okay, let's flip to the characteristics of the Lord. These are far more encouraging. Um, those characters of the world were all D's, just the way that David wrote this psalm, they all landed that way. So, and these characteristics of the Lord are all P's, all right? Couldn't do D's. First of all, the Lord is pure. Verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I love that he doesn't just say they're pure. He goes on as the Psalms often do to give a, like kind of paint a little word picture of like, what do you mean pure? Well, I mean, pure means clean, like morally pure, flawless, perfect. But then he gives this illustration. He's like, imagine this crucible on the ground, like a, a brick or clay oven or something. And that's superheated. And you take this metal 
and you put it on top, kind of in a bowl or something that can like, be superheated without melting. And they would literally do this in the ancient world. They would take these alloys of different minerals they found in the earth, and they would superheat them. And different things had different melting temperatures, and they would kind of separate into layers. And you could skim what's called the dross off the top of that. But he's like, but then they, they superheat it even more, and they do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, seven times to make sure there's nothing in there that's not pure, perfect, flawless silver. And he's like, that's the way the Lord's communication with us is. Much of the world's communication, it's not just like it's all impure, but it's a mix of impurity and purity. It's a mix of sincerity and duplicity. It's a mix. It's a mix of beauty and ugliness. It's a mix of loving, caring words and destructive, hateful words. But he's saying, but God's words, here's the difference. God's words are only truth, only sincerity, only beauty, only clean. So God is pure. Secondly, God is powerful. Verse 5, I will arise, says the Lord, to cut off the boasts of the wicked, to rescue the righteous remnant that's crying out to me. You got to love this irony that a few verses earlier, the wicked are asking this arrogant rhetorical question, and they're like, who is master over us? And they expect the answer to be no one. And God's like, I am. I have more power than you. And God says, I rise up to identify with and advocate for the righteous, and the wicked will find out Yahweh is master over you. That's who's master over you. And so, friends, do not fear, don't fret when you look at the power of the world and just systems and ideas and nations and politics that you disagree with or that you just believe they're just completely wrong because it's like God is infinitely more powerful. And like the very breath that the wicked take to curse God is a gift from God. And the moment he takes it back, as I mentioned Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah before, the moment God takes his gifts back, the wicked perish and are nothing. God is powerful. He's far more powerful. And finally, God is protector. So the psalm begins with a prayer and it ends with a promise. The prayer, verse 1, save, O Lord. God, as I'm surrounded by this, as maybe he even finds some of these temptations in his own heart, he's crying out with a prayer, save me, save us, save your people from all of this. And then there's David's promise in verse 7. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. This is the righteous. You will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The word keep is a word that means to observe in order to guard and protect. The word guard means to preserve or protect. Up in, up in Grand Lake, some of you have been there, and they have these nesting areas all along the edge of the lake on Shadow Mountain. And uh, they're for osprey. They're repopulating osprey into the area. And it's fascinating. There are certain times of the year, like in the fall, they'll shut down certain trails even and say you can't hike these trails because the osprey will be mating and laying their eggs. But I, I just kind of picture this osprey, that this, like this powerful, incredible, beautiful animal. And, I mean, you get other stuff near that creature during that time that it's hovering over its nest. 
And it's going to come at you with those massive talons and just want to rip you all to pieces to keep and guard, to preserve and protect. And so this is the way David sees God. And he's making this promise to the people of God that if you side with God and come under his protective care by faith, he's like that. And he's, he is watching, he is attentive, and his head's turning every which way to use that anthropomorphism of like God has a head and he has eyes. You know, he's, but he's like watching to preserve, protect, to guard. And then God's own promise to us in verse 5, he says, I will place him, and this is a reference specifically to the poor and needy, He says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. I just want to point out here the word save in verse 1, when David's praying, save us, O Lord, is the word yasa. The word safety in verse 5, where God himself promises safety to the one who comes under his care, is the word yasa. So yasa and yasa. And if, if you looked at Hebrew, if you knew Hebrew, you would realize like yasa is a verb. Save, deliver, rescue. Yesa is a noun. Salvation, deliverance, protection. And they're root words for the word Yeshua, which is a personal noun. Rescuer, deliverer, Yeshua. I want you to know salvation's personal. He's ultimately saying, God didn't just build you a bunker and be like, go in the bunker, you'll be safe. There's lots of food in the bunker. If that's your view of God, of like he's just building a place for me and it'll be safe, that's salvation, is that place. That's, that's not really how God works. That's not really how salvation works. By the same token, salvation is not just God giving you a list of principles to live by. And you're like, okay, if I live by these principles and, you know, like be pure and do these things, like, okay, then, then it'll all work out for me. That, that's not God's salvation either. God's salvation is personal. It's Yeshua, like literally the name Jesus. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus came to the earth as one of us, without ceasing to be God, do you know this? John, one of the gospel writers, referred to him as the Word. And he says the Word was in the beginning with God. The Word is God. The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory glory is of the only begotten one of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I love this, that when, when David is foreshadowing how the words of God are pure and they are protection for your life, he's foreshadowing that the word of God is not just a book. The word of God is the person of Jesus, okay? So it's like this, how do we come to know truth as opposed to error, or truth as opposed to deception? How do we come to know sincerity as opposed to duplicity? How do we come to know a servant's heart and a humble posture rather than a domineering posture? How do we come to know purity versus depravity? How do we come to know rescue versus destruction? And the Bible's answer is ultimately we know all of those things through God himself, through the story of Jesus. We don't just read principles. We don't just read promises. We don't just read a law and be like, okay, I'm going to try to do that. We read a story about Jesus. And again, like to use John Mark Comer's idea of discipleship, it's like, I want to be with that Jesus. I want to become like that Jesus. I want to do what that Jesus did so that my heart is a reflection of his heart. My words are a reflection of his words. And let me just do this with you quickly in closing. So here are a couple 
what I hope are gospel applications of what we're saying. First of all, don't be overly influenced by the words of the world. Don't be overly influenced. Do you hear words sometimes that like penetrate your soul or your mind, your emotions too deeply? You're like, that doesn't just sting. That, that was devastating. That was crippling. Okay, do words hurt? Absolutely. I mean, you know the crazy thing, like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words that, okay, you've lived an amazingly protected life if you think that little jingle's true. Words hurt far worse than simply breaking a bone. But as David holds this up and says, God, I, I can acknowledge all of these kinds of words, flattery and deception, just open, like slander of my life, false accusations, and keep them in perspective. Because what our world says, what our culture says is not what God says. So I'm encouraging you, don't be fragile. There, there's no value in being a fragile person with a fragile soul that's easily dismayed, that's easily flattered, and you're like, yes, I'm awesome, I'm flying high because that person that's probably destroying me behind my back like said that thing in that meeting for work. It's like, this is a call to be wise and to be resilient and to say, I can hear the words of the world, but not let them go too deep to the deepest parts of me to either flatter me, to make me feel amazing, or to make me feel just completely torn down. So don't be overly influenced by the words of the world. Number two, find safety in meditating on the word of God. Okay, how do you become a person that is not easily manipulated, that is not easily flattered, that is not easily like led into someone's bed because of a few little words that they spoke to you and you were like, that's what I wanted to hear tonight. This is amazing. How do you become a, that resilient person that discerns truth from error? It's like, I mean, other Psalms will say God's word is true and beautiful and perfect. So as he's contrasting the words of the world and culture with the words of God, get the words of God in you and chew on them and meditate on them and distill them into your biblical thinking. Number three, imitate the words of the Lord. Um, I'm not calling you to do this in an absence of trusting God, but I'm saying as you trust God for your salvation, as you listen to the words that he speaks over you, part of our call to apprentice under Jesus is to be like Jesus, not like everyone else. And again, I said from 1 Corinthians 5, my concern is much less just the, the kind of speech that's so prevalent with the world, but more like, why is it that we find the same patterns of speech in the church, in leadership in the church, to deceive, to flatter, to seek power and control, to manipulate people, to boast. So to imitate the words of Jesus, there's like this putting off. And again, I'm just calling you, like if you recognize like, oh, maybe I don't outright lie, but I do, I do use half-truths. And maybe even congratulate yourself for like, I fooled all those people and I never technically lied. That is not imaging forth a God who is true and trustworthy. So what's God calling you to put off this morning? What's God calling you to put on? Because it's not enough just to be like, okay, I'll, I won't try to deceive and I won't try to manipulate other people. Like they're, they're beautiful, pure, clean, encouraging, helpful, 
words that you're supposed to put on in the place of those negative words that you're putting off. I think it's important that in verse 1, what word is parallel to and synonymous with the word godly? You know, we talked about Hebrew poetry in, in the very first lesson that we did together this summer. But Hebrew poetry is often saying the same thing in two lines, synonymous parallelism, saying the same thing two slightly different ways. So you're like, what does it mean to be godly? And it's interesting that what's parallel is the word faithful, which we maybe think of being like loyal, but it actually in this context means trustworthy. You know, one of the major characteristics of just being like our God is that our word is good. We can be trusted. We are reliable with our word. So imitate the words of the Lord. And I'll close with this. Our boys play ice hockey. During an ice hockey game, there are a lot of voices. Okay, you've got, you've got teammates yelling at you. You've got your coaches yelling at you. You've got the other team yelling at you. Their coaches yelling at you. You've got the, the parents, which are some of the worst yellers, right? Um, taunting and encouraging and this whole mix of things if you're into kids' sports. It's, it's wild out there. You've got all these voices, it's kind of neat sometimes when our kids are out there and they're skating around, they're on their shift, and uh, there's a little bit of like a, a whistle, dead puck, and they'll like glance up into the gallery and just look. Our mom and dad watching. Because in this whole cacophony of voices, like are they there? Do they approve? Are they excited? Like Micah just scores a goal and like he's like, his teammates are all hugging him and they're all cheering and it's a very happy moment. And then there's that like little glance of like, how do my parents feel about what I did? You know, and we're jumping up and down and going crazy. This is life. You will go through life and like David, you will experience this, this cacophony of voices. Some of them for you. Some of them deliberately against you. Listen for the voice of Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's not going to be the popular voice that tells you life is going to be easy. You're hitting on all cylinders. You're crushing it. There's nothing you can change to be more like, it's the pure voice. It's the protector's voice. That's like, you're loved. You are absolutely safe in the arms of Yeshua. May we know that God. May we know his word, the written and the personal. Let's pray.